I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. Blowfish Sushi in San Francisco's Mission District closed permanently in December due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But you can still order sushi from Blowfish from a restaurant in the same space on DoorDash. How is this possible? Chronicle food writer Janelle Bitker has a riveting news story about restaurant imposters and how to avoid them. She also gives an update on the city's famous restaurant scene as restrictions are easing and San Franciscans are going out to eat again. Janelle Bitker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Heather. So you have a really interesting story up on sfchronicle.com now about some weird twists and turns in the opening of um, a couple of new restaurants in San Francisco. Or are they restaurants? Um, But this all started on Thursday when you saw something strange on Instagram. So tell me what happened and and how you've spent your past several days reporting this story. Yeah. So I saw a local food writer, Tamara Palmer. Um, She writes a column on Food 48 Hills. She posted on Instagram a photo of this really nice-looking marbled Wagyu sushi, Um, and it said that she ordered from Wagyu Mafia, which is this really famous Japan-based restaurant that is mostly known for selling a $180 sandwich. Um, Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So she... I have never eaten there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So she wrote on Instagram that she um, ordered from Wagyu Mafia in San Francisco and then found out it was a fake. It was a fake restaurant, according Hmm. to the restaurant in Japan. Um, so a weird situation. So we decided to poke around and talk to her. How did she learn the restaurant was fake? If you don't mind me interjecting. Oh yes. There are so many twists and turns to the story. So please (laughs) all the detail. Um, so she posted on Instagram, like, wow, finally got to try this restaurant. Um, and apparently when she went to sleep, a friend in Hong Kong, um, tagged the real Wagyu Mafia mm. being like, wait, I didn't know you were in San Francisco. Um, and the real Wagyu Mafia emailed her and she woke up to this email like, urgent, please change what you wrote. This is not the real Wagyu Mafia. This is an unauthorized Wagyu Mafia. Yeah. Because obviously our ace restaurant team would know if they had actually opened I like to think so. Um, (laughs) They did try to open here a few years ago. So the Chronicle Mm. has written about this $180 sandwich. um, Mm -hmm. But the plans fell through. Um, So, yeah, it would have been very surprising to me if I was on DoorDash looking for what was around and suddenly saw Wagyu Mafia was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So she was similarly shocked and... um, felt like she had been duped and wanted her money back. Um, Mm -hmm. But also just she didn't really want to get involved. It felt like this weird international Wagyu conspiracy. (laughs) And she was in the middle of it. (laughs) Yes. So I just went and looked on their delivery app listings, scrolled down. It's a super long menu, like 200 items. They're serving sushi and ramen and izakaya plates and soba and at the bottom of the page it says that wagyu mafia is operating out of blowfish sushi and Hmm. so i'm like wait a minute blowfish sushi 
that's a really famous restaurant. It's been around for more than 20 years. Um, So I looked it up, and indeed, the address on Mission Street belonged to Blowfish Sushi. But Blowfish Sushi permanently closed in December because Mm -hmm. of the pandemic. And that's a bummer in and of itself. <laughs> it is a bummer. And I don't think that had really been reported anywhere. A lot of restaurants yeah. are quietly closing because of the pandemic and it's hard to keep track of all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I called the owner, Jason, and I was like, hey, are you still operating for takeout at Mission Street? And he was really confused. It was a very confusing conversation at first because he was like, no, we closed. We couldn't make takeout work. And I was like, but people are ordering <laughs> from you. <laughs> yeah. um, you have a Yelp page and people ordered from you as early as or as recently as like last week. And um, as you can imagine, he got pretty <laughs> upset, pretty yeah. shocked um, and just couldn't believe like, wait a minute, is there an impersonator of Blowfish Sushi in San Francisco? Did someone take over? my restaurant Mm -hmm. and reopen it as my restaurant. And um, (laughs) it's a weird situation. But eventually on on Friday night, he went down there to try to find out, well, who are these people? Mm -hmm. Um, So he goes, he's already not feeling very patient because he found out that one of his colleagues had already tried to find out who these people were and Mm -hmm. had already gone to the restaurant and said that there was a trademark issue. Um, So he goes and he asks, well, well, who's the owner? I need to speak to the owner. And um, the employees there say they don't know who the owner is. The owner isn't there. Um, He starts yelling. He's threatening. They're scared. They call the police. Um, And that's how that day ends. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This is like a movie. It feels a little like a movie. Um, So after that confrontation, I tried to get a hold of the restaurant owners Mm -hmm. and was looking through public records, trying to figure out who they are. Um, And I don't know who they are. I found one permit filed with the city with the name Anna Zhao on it. Mm -hmm. But the employees I talked to said they had no idea who that was. Hmm. And um, I looked through some other city filings and only found a business name of Mission Blowfish. That's who Hmm. opened the restaurant. Um, And the people I talked to at the restaurant would only tell me a corporation owns it that's not local. And they also would not answer any questions about Wagyu Mafia. Were the same people operating both of those supposed restaurants then? The same staff? It seems like it. Um, It's Mm -hmm. a very small restaurant. Jason thought they only had maybe 100 or 200 square feet of kitchen space in there. So it would be hard to operate several restaurants in that space let alone have several restaurant staffs in that space. Yeah. Um, so it seems like it would have to be the same people, at least the same leader um, operating both restaurants. And when I last talked to the staff 
at Blowfish, they said, you know, they had no idea about Wagyu Mafia. They thought maybe it was a pop-up, but that it was done. Um, but the listings on DoorDash and Grubhub are still active. You could still order from Wagyu Mafia right now. We'll be right back after a short break. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. How did this story resolve? <laughs> it's unresolved. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's an unresolved mystery. We don't know who's behind this restaurant location. Um, the owners of Blowfish plan to do something about it. Um, same with the Wagyu Mafia people in Japan. They both said they're investigating the matter and they will probably maybe take legal action if um, the restaurant doesn't stop using their names. Mm-hmm. And they also said that they would be calling the various delivery apps to try to get their pages taken down because I think when people sign up for something like DoorDash, they say they own the right to what they're posting. And at least in the case of Blowfish, they were using the original Blowfish's logo. Mm -hmm. And then you talked to a manager who said that seemed to imply that it was just sort of a misunderstanding and that the signage had just been left behind. Yeah. The way the manager put it was that, you know, they wanted to open this restaurant in the middle of the pandemic and it's hard to get help. It's hard to file permits. So they thought it would just be the easiest thing to reopen the restaurant with the same name and the same sign. <laughs> um, but that they so weird. But they did put work into it. It's not like you can just open a restaurant that easily. Like they did file these permits with the city as Blowfish Sushi and they did sign up for these delivery apps and they did create this Yelp page for themselves. And and on that Yelp page, they called themselves a legendary sushi restaurant that opened in 1998. <laughs> well, it's just hard not to say that. I mean, <laughs> it's a That's good crazy. claim to fame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you said that the awning, they finally removed the logo from outside. You're right. That is an important part to the end of the story. Um, When I called them and talked to them on Sunday, they said that, you know, after all this blow up over the name and the logo, which they said they apparently don't even like very much, um, (laughs) they decided to get paint and a ladder and they finally painted over the logo and took down the awning and wanted to change the name anyway. Um, So... It's very possible that in a few days, this will all entirely be in the past. And then you can sell your screenplay. (laughs) Yes. Who wants it? I'm ready. (laughs) So this does point to a larger issue that I know the Chronicle has written about before, which is ghost kitchens and how those are on the rise. So can you explain what those are and why they're an issue? Yes. So ghost kitchens um, were already gaining in popularity before the pandemic hit, but they've really just exploded since then as more people are relying on delivery apps and staying at home. Basically what a ghost kitchen is, is it's some sort of restaurant facility that will operate a restaurant that's only for delivery. Like it only exists online. Like some of them 
will also do takeout, but you can't go to the restaurant and order takeout. You have to order it through an app and then you have to go get it or it gets delivered. Um, And I think most people would agree that there's nothing inherently wrong with that model. And we've seen a lot of local restaurants embrace ghost kitchens lately, like Dosa is all about them. China Live has been opening a bunch of them. Um, But when news first started coming out a couple years ago about ghost kitchens, people were kind of freaked out and felt like they were sketchy, like there was something just weird about them. And I think it's just this idea that you don't really know who's making your food. You don't really know where it's coming from. Um, There was this one ghost kitchen company that was expanding a lot in San Francisco two years ago called Reef. And they would set up these white trailers in parking lots. So your food was always coming from a parking lot. And I went to one of those parking lots and I saw these drivers go up and they always seemed so confused. Like, wait, I thought this was a (laughs) burger restaurant and where am I? And maybe the food's really good. Maybe they're able to make fantastic burgers and fried chicken sandwiches and burritos and Chinese noodles and sushi and or whatever else they're making out of this one small kitchen. But I think for a lot of people, they would rather know that they're supporting a local business and not one that's optimized for the internet. Right. And then I wanted to ask you about another um, development in the San Francisco restaurant world, which is La Cocina opening um, just this week. And that's at the corner of Golden Gate and Hyde. Um, and it's an important um, it's an important sign of hope for the Tenderloin. So can you tell me about that restaurant? Or it's not even a restaurant. It's How would you describe it? Yeah, it's a food hall. It's a really big deal. La Cocina is a beloved nonprofit and incubator of restaurants, primarily helping immigrant women and women of color in San Francisco. And they've launched the careers of, of people like Reem Asil of Reems or Night Nyan of Yambai. And this is sort of their most ambitious project yet. It's five years in the making. Um, and they finally opened on Monday. And it's just this big, beautiful food hall with um, six restaurants in it right now. Um, so six women of color who sort of graduated through their program got to open, um, their kiosk restaurants and right now they're open for lunch on weekdays and they're serving things like vegan pupusas and Algerian couscous bowls and, um, po'boys with fried shrimp and avocado. It's a really eclectic and diverse mix. And Mm -hmm. it also has a great community ethos behind it. They really want to be part of the tenderloin and to boost the tenderloin. So it's not like a a gentrifying restaurant coming in with $30 entrees. Um, They're making a commitment for every day for there to be a full meal for only $5 for anyone who needs it. And they also have a lot of other things in store for when they can open safely indoors, like computer access for anyone who needs it, no purchase necessary, or um, Mm -hmm. a community gathering space for meetings, again, no purchase necessary. So it'll be really 
exciting to see how it evolves over time, especially as we're recovering from the pandemic. Yeah. And that is such a hard corner at Golden Gate and Hyde. I've written a lot about that corner. Um, It's a ground zero for the fentanyl um, drug trade. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with La Cocina opening its doors there. Yeah, I'm sure you'll be following that (laughs) in your own reporting. Yes. So I think we should go there for lunch sometime. And you can write about what's happening on the inside and I'll write about what's happening on the outside. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) And then last question, you know, as San Francisco is reopening and um, and restaurants are beginning to open again, uh, what are you seeing in terms of the restaurant scene in the city? Any thoughts on how many have closed permanently? Like you said, some are closing without us even really noticing because we're all home too. So um, are you feeling optimistic about it or what's your general overview? Yeah, it's so hard to say how many restaurants have closed. And I don't think I've seen any definitive numbers on that in San Francisco. Um, But talking to restaurant owners and chefs and employees, it, it feels like people are feeling a lot of hope right now. Um, restaurant workers are largely vaccinated at this point and restaurants are opening indoors at 50% and keeping their parklets and outdoor setups going. Um, I don't know if you've been out recently, but I was out last weekend, um, at a couple of restaurants and it just felt like lively, like all the, everything yeah, was full. I've been feeling Everyone's that too. out. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then, um, just the openings front, I feel like during the pandemic, not a ton of new restaurants were opening. We were seeing a lot of really interesting food coming from pop-ups, but now it feels like we're at that moment where places like the La Cocina marketplace, um, who were waiting, until they felt confident about opening, both from a safety perspective, but also just from like, we don't want to have to shut down again because of a COVID spike. Um, Those restaurants are now opening. They're feeling good about it. Um, And with that, we're seeing a lot of fine dining come back um, and a lot of fine dining restaurants be announced um, since those were not super relevant during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, people weren't really able to go out and enjoy a lavish two-hour meal, um, but that scene is definitely roaring back to life. So maybe people will buy $180 <laughs> sandwiches. Maybe not for takeout, though. People <laughs> want to eat it in person. Yes. Great. Well, it's always fun to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Heather. Thank you to Janelle Bitker for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. 